Thank you, folks. And uh, on behalf of uh, both Lucia and I, uh, I want to thank everyone for just the, the gracious invitation uh, to ask us to come back uh, during this very uh, special time in the life of the church. And uh, the scriptures teach in the book of Colossians that, that the Lord does an amazing thing with his people. Uh, in the great diversity in which he has made us, he knits our hearts together. And when we come back here, we come back to a place that feels like home, a place where our hearts have been knit together with people that we so dearly love. So we're so very thankful for this time with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, now to the message. Uh, ever appropriate, I think, for this occasion, uh, here's your simple summary of the message. Uh, today's message is about the church. Now, we're not done. You can't go home. So you still got to stick around for the rest of it. We're going to talk about the church, and in particular, that manifestation of the church that we call the local church. Uh, and to kind of get us going in this conversation, in this discussion about the church, I want to begin with a, a brief film clip uh, from the film adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's novel, the, Lord, the third novel in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Return of the King. Now, before we show the clip, I just want to cue it a little bit, especially for folks who are not familiar with the story or the movie. What you're going to see in the clip is a, a central figure in the story, a man named Aragorn. He's in his tent. Uh, he is in a tent amongst an army that is getting prepared to fight the great battle of their time, uh, the great battle of good versus evil. Uh, and as Aragorn is in his tent, he is visited by another man, a king, a man named Elrond, King Elrond. And Elrond comes bringing Aragorn two things, the gift of a sword and a challenge. And to understand the nature of the gift and the challenge, you just need to know a brief background about Aragorn. Uh, you're going to see him referred to in the clip as, as the ranger. Uh, that's how Aragorn was living. The ranger in the story uh, a ranger is someone who is really a benevolent mercenary. There's no better way that I can think of to describe it. That's how he's living. Uh, but Aragorn is far much more than a ranger, far much more than a benevolent mercenary. You see, he is the descendant of a great line of kings uh, who ruled over a great kingdom called Gondor. And Aragorn is far more than the ranger. He is the rightful king of Gondor. But he's not living that way. And so when Elrond comes and he comes bearing the sword, the sword is significant because the sword was one that Aragorn's great descendant, who fought the last great battle against evil and won, but in that battle that sword, that sword was shattered. Elrond comes bringing the sword reforged. There's your background. Let's watch the clip. You're outnumbered, Aragorn. You need more men. There are none. There are those who dwell in the mountain. Murderers. Traitors. You would call upon them to fight. They believe in nothing. They answer to no one. They will answer to the King of Gondor. Anduril, a flame of the West, forged from the shards of Narsil.
army more deadly than any that walks this earth. Put aside the ranger. Become who you are born to be. Take the Demolt Road. Manani Estelle Dain. See, Aragorn had a bit of an identity crisis, and he was challenged to put aside the ranger and become who he was born to be. And folks, I think the church in America today has a bit of an identity crisis. I think we have taken this magnificent and majestic thing that Christ has founded in his building, and I think in many ways we've turned it into something far less uh, something, honestly, not a whole lot different than the world around us, uh, a rather superficial thing, you know, that looks like the world around us in many ways. We just have better T-shirts, wristbands, and bumper stickers. Um, I think the challenge to the church today, and we're going to talk about it, is to become who we were born again to be. So, beginning with that, if you can go ahead and cue the, the title slide there, Matthew, there we go. Uh, I said we were going to talk about the church, but we're going to talk about it from the perspective of who we are. Do we truly know who we are? Do we know who Christ has made us to be? Uh, you know, in our present day, uh, churches typically approach the question of what their purpose and role is in God's redemptive, redemptive plan by turning to things that we can do. Uh, in his well-known study, Experiencing God, Henry Blackaby described uh, the Christian experience is oftentimes like a leaf in a fast-moving stream that's caught up in an eddy. It's spinning rapidly, but it's really not going anywhere. And Blackaby's point is that being in the stream is necessary for any meaningful movement according to God's purposes. In other words, understanding what the church is is an essential prerequisite to understand, understanding what the church ought to be doing. And folks, I'm going to be very candid with you this morning in letting you know up front that in today's message, I'm operating under the assumption that most churches in America today have a, a very poor understanding of what the church truly is, because if that were not the case, then I think we would be approaching the mission that Christ has given us so very differently. And we'll get into perhaps some of those differences uh, that could be possible uh, for us this morning. Now, I believe that the church in America has a critical identity crisis. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul tells the church at Corinth something remarkable. He says to them, for we are God's fellow workers. Can you imagine that? He goes on to say, you are God's field. And then in a metaphor that I'm going to build on in today's message, he says, you're God's building. And very interestingly, in today's text from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, Paul is trying to roll back an identity crisis within the church at Ephesus using a building metaphor with construction themes that move throughout the passage. And so as, as a preview, the main points are going to reflect the different phases of Christ's construction work in building his church. Uh, you know, in a way that's all too fitting uh, for our Lord who took on human form and labored as a craftsman during much of his earthly life. We'll see that his handiwork in building his church as he tears down the old, 
relocates the lost into God's presence to build them up into his new and wonderful creation, the church. Uh, So let's begin with our first point by taking a look uh, at Jesus' demolition project, what he tore down and how he destroyed it. Uh, In Galatians 3.28, well-known verse, Paul teaches, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, the church is a community of God's people with a common, unbreakable bond in Christ, and that bond is formed without distinctions made over matters of ethnicity, social status, or gender. But in today's text, we see that this was not always the case. Christ's death on the cross was necessary. It was necessary to destroy the barriers which alienated us from God and one another. Let's take a look first at the clues in the text uh, that teach us what these barriers are in verses 14 through 16. You know, I've got the the text thrown on the screen. You can follow along there in your Bibles. And by the way, I am preaching out of the ESV this morning. Um, And and beginning in verse 14, uh, Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees. Oh, disregard. That was chapter 3. Let's go to chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, as you can see on on the slide, the English Standard Version, and by the way, a majority of English translations, equates hostility with the dividing wall in in verse 14. Uh, Whereas, for example, if you're reading from the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, you'll notice the translation there equates this state of hostility, and the NASB uses the word enmity, uh, but it equates this state of hostility with the law in verse 15. And there's a reason for the differences in the translations there uh, because of the way that Paul constructs his sentence in the Greek text. It makes it possible for hostility to be an adjective either modifying, uh, you know, the law or the dividing wall. Uh, And for the record, I agree with the majority of English translations, which which concludes that it's modifying the dividing wall in, in verse 14. But, but apart from that interesting discussion, folks, wherever you place the hostility, it's clearly a dimension of human relationships depicted in the text. And there are two clues, I think, which tell us more specifically what the sources of hostility were. Uh, we see the signs of hostility in the very beginning of the passage as Paul refers uh, to Gentiles in verse 11, and he does so by, refer- by saying this, Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And when Paul says uncircumcision here, he's using a derogatory term, an insulting term, that was used by Jews to refer to Gentiles. Um, But Paul gives his first hint at the need to destroy this hostile attitude when he calls the Jews who use this kind of language, he refers to them as what is called the circumcision. Your translation might say the so-called circumcision. And really, this is Paul. You might never have picked up on this, but Paul is responding to a little bit of his name, a name-calling of his own in this point. To make the point that their understanding of God's intention for circumcision was flawed. And he takes it to another level. He essentially uses fighting words to describe how flawed their understanding was when he says that their circumcision was performed in the flesh by hands. 
Now again, that doesn't have a whole lot of meaning to us, but that phrase is loaded with meaning. It's really a loaded statement to an audience, in particular to a Jewish audience. Uh, this phrase is used exclusively both in Greek translations of the Old Testament, if you know the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but it's used in the Greek translations of the Old Testament as well as the Greek in the New Testament to refer to works of men's hands that were done for the purposes either of idolatry or for things that were contrary to God's will and purposes in his world. So you can imagine using this phrase and in essence saying to the Jews that your understanding of, of circumcision is either idolatrous or at best is contrary to God's will and purposes. Uh, a good example of how loaded this statement is, you see in Mark 14, 58, where Jesus is reported by witnesses to have used the same phrase when he says, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. So think about it. Jesus is telling them that your temple is essentially an idolatrous undertaking or at best something that's contrary to God's will and purposes. You understand now why he got the reaction he did when he said that. He said, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Keep that contrast in mind a little bit later on here in the message when we get to the building phase of today's message where, uh, you know, we'll see that Jesus is building his church into a holy temple in the Lord in verse 21. But back to the topic of hostility and its presence in human relationships here uh, in the text. Uh, the hostility present in verse 11 based on our understanding of this phrase, made by human hands, is an attitude generated by people, listen carefully, who fail to discern God's purposes in something that he has commanded. And it's a similar issue in play with the dividing wall of hostility that we see in verse 14. The commentators wrestle endlessly with exactly what the heck Paul is referring to here when he says dividing wall of hostility, but I think it's best to simply take it as a metaphor for hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, and there are two key features in first century Judaism uh, that, that make this really a very appropriate description for hostility in Jewish-Gentile relationships. And the first was the actual physical qualities of the temple, uh, where a low dividing wall, probably about three to four feet high, served as a partition between Israelites and Gentiles at the point uh, where the courts for the Jews, interestingly, rose on a plateau above the court of the Gentiles. So if you can imagine this, uh, as a Gentile, you can come to the temple. There's an outer court where you can worship. It's on a lower plane than the court where Jews can go. In between those courts is a wall about yea high, and in selected places there's partitions where you can walk through, and everywhere there's a partition, there's an inscription warning Gentiles that if they go from that lower outer court to that elevated inner court, it's a capital offense, and you're going to face death. A dividing wall of hostility. Uh, a second aspect of first century Judaism that supports uh, a dividing wall metaphor uh, as a source of hostility was the Jewish teaching derived from the law itself. They, they referred to it as, a law, as the law that served as a hedge of protection around uh, the people of Israel from the surrounding nations. Uh, now, yeah, the law had a purpose for preserving the holiness of God's people uh, as a testimony to the nations, but not for the purpose of perfect isolation from them. But that's how they understood it. And so once again... Uh, this misunderstanding and misapplication of the law caused distinctions and divisions between Jews and Gentiles, which produced deep-seated hostility. 
So to sum up, the sources of hostility Paul identifies in this passage pertain to the hostility generated on the human side of God's old covenant relationship with his people. And so for Christ to destroy the hostility, he needed to change the nature of the covenant relationship. Uh, Look again at verses 14 through 16. You, You see in these verses that Christ's death on the cross abolished the law as the basis for God's covenant relationship with people, not because the law was flawed, but because in our sinful nature, the law provoked that sinful nature rather than redeeming it. Uh, We don't have time to go back and look at it this morning, but this is essentially the argument that Paul makes in Romans chapter 7 and the first part of Romans chapter 8. If you go back and you study, you'll see that Paul teaches there that the law and its commandments are holy and righteous and good, yet the law is spiritual and because of the weakness of our flesh. And when I say the weakness of our flesh, I'm talking about that tendency in our sinful nature to drive us to be consumed with self-interest. Because of the weakness of our flesh, the law provokes us to greater sin rather than to redeeming our nature. Therefore, the purpose of the law wasn't to redeem us, but to drive us to recognize our wretched condition and our need for God's intervention to deliver us from our wretched condition. Christ is our deliverer. Therefore, the life of those who trust in Christ is set free from the unbridled, the unbridled, power of sin. The law no longer has the power to condemn us, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we now possess the capacity to rise above a life bent on hostility towards God's purposes, which is, by the way, a capacity that we innately lack apart from Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit that comes through faith in him alone. So, Coming back to Ephesians, Christ's death on the cross abolished the law and the hostility that it provoked in our sinful nature. It got rid of something that we were powerless to rid ourselves of. And as we see in verses 15 and 16, his death on the cross instead brought peace and reconciliation in its place, both between one another and between us and God. Christ's death on the cross was necessary to destroy those barriers which alienated us from God and one another. And so we get an initial glimpse from this passage of what the, truly, what the church truly is, folks. Listen carefully. The church truly is a place where in a world where God-given differences of race, ethnicity, and gender, etc., can and often do provoke hostility. Folks, in Christ's church, those differences exist in a state of peace and reconciliation, or at least they ought to. The church which puts a dividing wall of hostility between the gospel and people is a church in name only. It is not a church that Christ is building because he destroyed those barriers. Southwest Airline once used the slogan, you are free to move about the country. Christ's barrier destroying death on the cross leaves those who trust in him free to move as well. As we'll see in our second point. That is, death on the cross makes it possible for us to move, to draw near to God in relationship with him. Now, I don't want to dwell too long on this point, but I do want to draw your attention to the theme of movement in this passage, and then I'll sum up what I think the significance of our relocation is uh, when we get to the end of this part of the message. Uh, Looking in verse 12, Paul paints a a really bleak picture 
of life apart from Christ as a hopeless, distant estrangement from God. But through the blood of Christ, we have been brought near. And if you pay real careful attention to the text, you'll notice that we didn't come alone. Uh, Look carefully with me here, beginning in verse 14, where we see Christ made us both one. And then in verse 16, he reconciles us both. And in verse 18, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And you might be asking yourself, who is the both here? Who's Paul referring to? Folks, the both which Paul keeps referring to here are two groups of people, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And in verse 15, Paul teaches that Christ died on the cross so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, or as you can see on the screen, I think the NIV really states it more clearly, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Folks, Christ's church is a new kind of humanity, not the kind of humanity that exists outside of life in Christ as part of his body. Uh, The movements described here are spiritual movements of a new humanity, believing Jews and Gentiles reconciled and at peace with one another in the Lord. In other words, the church is Jesus Christ's new creation of a new humanity, which we see in verse 19 has obtained citizenship in God's kingdom and a place in his household. We have moved. Uh, I've had a lot of opportunities in the past to lead churches through uh, a process of developing a vision for its future direction in ministry. And on one occasion, in, in one of those instances, uh, when I asked that gathering, and it was, a, it was a gathering of folks within the church who were leaders and prominent members in the church, I asked them the question, what is the church? Sort of like we're talking about this morning. And here are some of the less wonderful answers I got from this group of leaders and prominent members within the church. One said, well, the church is a social gathering. Another said it's a building. One said it's a business. Another called it a tradition. And my least favorite uh, was that the church is a voluntary association. Now, folks, if those answers resonate with you, we have a full-blown identity crisis. And the common denominator in all of those answers is that the church is primarily a human institution. In contrast, in our first two points, we're seeing that the church, uh, that Jesus Christ's death on the cross makes possible is a gathering of very different people who defy the world's hostile relational model because the church, because the cross relocates us. It relocates us into the very presence, kingdom, and household of God as a new humanity where our differences fade as his work in building us as his church advances. Folks, please hear this. The church is not a human institution. It is a supernatural institution of humans that are redeemed by Jesus Christ. And as we'll see in our third point, Christ is building his church with careful, careful precision according to God's glorious purposes. Uh, One of my favorite memories when Lucia and I were stationed in Korea is we lived in an apartment next to another apartment building which, although relatively new, was being demolished because the foundation was poorly laid. Uh, And it it affected how the building settled uh, as well as the form that it took as it was being built up. In short, the building was unstable. 
But in contrast to that, in verses 20 through 22, we see Christ's precision and care in building his church. Uh, As the cornerstone, his perfect nature sets the pattern for both the foundation of the apostles and prophets that Jesus himself shaped and in the building's upward rise, which is the fitting together of believers in him. And this picture of Christ integrated as the essential part of every dimension of the church shows us that Christ is preeminent in the foundation and fixes the standard for every, every, every dimension of the building's ongoing growth. Uh, It's, again, something that's not easy to pick up in your English translations, but in verses 21 and 22 in particular, Paul's using technical terminology here. He's using terminology of the craftsman. He's using trade language here to portray the work of a master craftsman uh, depicting an elaborate process of that craftsman preparing and fitting stones together with a sense of care and detail. Uh, Every stone is the object of his careful work and attention. And you know who he's referring to here when he talks about stones, individual believers. And when I mention every stone is the object of his careful work and attention, I know in our culture we immediately begin to individualize that. But Christ's work in us is not merely something that is for the purpose of of fashioning us as individuals. Because every stone is also being fashioned to be placed in relation to one another with the same careful work and attention. Folks, Jesus Christ is working in your life to fashion you, yes, as an individual, but as an individual who will serve him, who will worship him, who will follow him in community. And your identity in Christ cannot be separated from that. You know, earlier I mentioned Mark 14, uh, 58, where Jesus was said to have disparaged the temple as the work of men's hands, and then he promised uh, to build up a temple made without hands. Well, now we see this glorious purpose of Christ's careful work and attention towards us as he builds us up as the very dwelling place for the Lord, of the Holy Spirit who dwells in every believer and vitally connects us to Christ and to one another by his presence within us and his ministry in and through us. And with this awesome truth about our true identity and mind, we've got to conclude that Christ's work in building his church is breathtaking. Is there room for awe and wonder in our relationship with him and in our worship of him? There ought to be. Sticking with verses 20 through 22, they they serve really as a beautiful climax to the passage, uh, combining the themes of demolition and movement and construction while throwing in a wonderful twist at the end, which we'll talk about here in a second. But we see the themes of demolition and construction again for the stones that Christ is fitting together are no longer stones that are being shaped exclusively by the hostile forces of this world, forces that his death destroyed. Rather, we are being shaped by our master's hand so that we can be fit together according to his purposes so that his church can be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And as the dwelling of God by the Spirit, our third theme of movement, I think, is also the wonderful twist in Paul's teaching here. Because the word dwelling used here is less lofty than the word temple in verse 21. Uh, You know, in John chapter 1, I can't remember the exact verse where it says, Jesus came and dwelt among us. Uh, The word there literally means to tabernacle. Jesus came, and as God dwelt among his people in the tabernacle in the wilderness, Jesus came and dwelt in the form of 
of one who is fully man. He tabernacled among us. And as God moves into his dwelling place here in verse 21, the word is more of a description, less lofty than a temple, more like just a simple home. In the Old Covenant, God fills a literal temple, while in the New Covenant, God has moved. He has relocated himself to fill the corporate body of believers with his presence, to make his home with us. Folks, his church, which includes his local church here at Perimeter Road, is not a social gathering or a voluntary association, no, no different, say, perhaps than a civic organization that you might belong to. The church is a supernatural creation of Christ that he has formed and continues to build with great care and attention, using people that he has redeemed from citizenship in this world into citizenship into his kingdom. People, by the way, who are diverse in every way that God has made us diverse. And if this is so, then kind of in drawing the message to a close here, what I want to do is come back to the challenge made to Aragorn in the video clip in the beginning. Let us become who we truly are in light of what the passage teaches this morning. Uh, The message of today's passage, by the way, is not an FYI. Don't fall into the trap of of learning neat things and just thinking that that's cool and it stands alone uh, in and of itself. This is not just an FYI. As I hope you've already discovered, being who we truly are is not a passive activity. It entails action. Uh, Beginning with, I think, the need to look like Christ has truly destroyed the barrier of hostility. Remember, Christ's death on the cross destroyed the barriers which alienated us from God and one another. And in today's text, the difference between Jews and Gentiles produced hostility, a fact of life and human relationships way too evident in our world today. All you've got to do is watch the news for any 30-minute segment, and you'll see that. And it's a fact of life in human relationships, especially when race and ethnicity are the basis for the differences between people. But in Christ's church, the church is a new humanity that can defy this worldly result. And folks, when it does, when we do what the world can't do, when we come together in the ways that he has made us different and we live reconciled with him and with one another, at peace with him and with one another, when we do what the world can't do, when when we defy that worldly model, we proclaim the power of the gospel to the glory of God in ways that it cannot be proclaimed really in any other way. They got to look at us and they got to say, how do you make that work? Well, we don't make it work, but we have a great God who does. This is a bunny trail and I can't go off on it, but can you imagine in the first century, uh, A, the distinctions between men and women, uh, B, the distinctions between slaves and and their owners, and yet they come together as a church at peace and reconciled with one another. That is mind boggling. The differences we deal with are far less than that. And yet we seem to have a far greater problem with making that work. Why is that? Different message. I'll stop. But folks, if the church is a community where the kinds of people who are at war in the world have found reconciliation and peace through Christ and that world-defying fact glorifies him, then our ministry in sharing the gospel in the circles God leads us to walk in this world ought to anticipate that he is going to connect us with people very different than ourselves. And that we ought to embrace those opportunities when they come.
In other words, becoming who we truly are means keeping our witness and our testimony free from man-made barriers. And by the way, very importantly, rejoicing when the Lord makes this body right here look like the broader community all the more every day that he has placed you in. Amen? Secondly, we need to bear true faith and allegiance to our king. And folks, this is a little bit of a warning up front. I'm going to press you on this point. I think you're going to feel pressed. Uh, If the church is a body of believers relocated by Christ, relocated into God's presence, relocated into his household, relocated into his kingdom as citizens, then how we relate to this world and everything in it changes. It ought to be diametrically opposite to the way the world does things. The scriptures teach that Christians are to be the best of citizens, yes. Yet when authorities seek to compel us to act contrary to God's word, kingdom citizens must obey God rather than men, as Peter declares in Acts 5.29. But here's the twist that I'm going to press you on. Because in that passage where Peter declares that, keep in mind that Peter and the apostles also accepted the consequences of a flogging, and they rejoiced afterward that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name, as we read in Acts 5.41. Now you're sitting here and you're thinking, oh my goodness. They were flogged, by the way. They were brought into the Jewish council and they were flogged for faithfully preaching and teaching Christ in the temple. They were doing the Father's will. They're arrested, they're flogged for it, and their reaction to that is to rejoice. And you've got to ask yourself, why in the world is that a cause for rejoicing? In fact, why in the world are they even putting up with that in the first place? I'll give you three reasons. It's another message. I'm going to handle them in very summary fashion. Three reasons why this is a cause for rejoicing. Our transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ. The affirmation that we are worthy of our eternal inheritance. And the confirmation that God's kingdom moves in great power in this fallen world in ways that defy the world's model. So let's begin with our transformation. Uh, as a cause for rejoicing in in this particular instance. The Bible teaches in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that the Holy Spirit is about the work of transforming us from glory to glory into the likeness of Jesus Christ. You love the saying, what would Jesus do? Think carefully about that before you embrace it and imagine all that that entails. Because the scripture teaches that the height of our transformation into the likeness of Christ's character is when we share in his sufferings. Go back and read Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, and the role that tribulation for faithfulness plays in transforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Peter and the apostles suffered a flogging, and they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. Very interestingly, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus says, for the person who does not take up their cross and follow him, that person is not worthy of him. Think about that. What is the cross that we take up? It is in the likeness of the cross that our Savior took up. The cross that comes into your life when you faithfully follow the Father's will in a fallen world and ultimately and inevitably encounter trials, afflictions, persecution, even if the Lord wills giving of your life for the cause of Christ in this world. That's your cross. And Jesus says, not only take up your cross, but follow me. In other words, take up your cross in the way that I did. 
And the Scriptures teach repeatedly that Jesus took up His cross and He endured whatever end the Father brought as a result of that. And He trusted the Father, the Father, fully to provide whatever form of deliverance came as a result of that. And that came in three different ways. Either deliverance from those circumstances, deliverance through those circumstances, or ultimately, if the Father wills, deliverance to the point of giving your life for the sake of Christ. Our Lord Jesus modeled faithfulness to the Father to each of those three ends, most particularly by humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What would Jesus do? He did that. And in humbling himself in that way, took up his cross. We are called to do likewise. A great example of this, for example, is in the life of Stephen, who preached a pointed gospel gospel message to a hostile crowd and received the stones that ultimately took his life. And as the stones are taking his life, the Lord Jesus stands, I think, doing two things, commending him for his faith and strengthening him for that moment to preserve him faithful to the end. And what does Stephen do? Very much like what Jesus would do. He prayed for the Father's forgiveness for those who were hurling the stones. Why is this a cause for rejoicing when the apostles are flogged? Um, Because the height of, of God's work in transforming them into the likeness of Christ was happening. And they rejoiced because they endured their suffering the way their Savior did. A second reason is affirmation of our uh, worthiness for our eternal inheritance. Uh, Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, the Beatitudes. He says, rejoice. He commands us to rejoice when you are reviled and persecuted for my name's sake. But he goes on to explain why. He says, for great is your reward in heaven. Folks, our reward in heaven, and we sang about it this morning, is the reward of the promise that we will be resurrected to an eternal human life just like Jesus fully delivered from the power and the presence and the penalty of sin and so made fit to enjoy the eternity that God has prepared for us in a heaven and earth, Revelation 21, made forever new and forever good. And in Romans chapter 8, which part of our memory verses came from this morning, Paul teaches there, speaking of that promise of our eternal inheritance and glory, he says the present sufferings are inconsequential. They're not even worth considering in light of what God has prepared for us in eternity. And in the verses preceding that very telling, Paul says the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are daughters and sons of the King. And if daughters and sons, then we are heirs. And if heirs, then we are joint heirs or fellow heirs. Because Jesus Christ, book of Hebrews, is the heir of all things. We become heirs with him because of God's grace through Christ. But Paul says we are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ provided. We suffer with him and so be glorified with him. A second reason, our transformation into the likeness of Christ, the affirmation that we are worthy of that eternal inheritance, that was cause for the rejoicing of the apostles for receiving a flogging. One more, and then I'm done soapboxing you guys on this point, but there is one more here, and, and that is the confirmation of, of God's kingdom moving in mighty power in this fallen world. In John 16, Jesus said, in this world you might have tribulation. Am I right? Or did he say you may have tribulation? Am I right? You will have tribulation. He said, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. In other words, rejoice. 
I have overcome the world. Folks, the work is as good as done. I've overcome it. Good is done, but still in progress. And the means by which Christ overcomes the world in progress to bringing us to that end is through his church. How did Jesus, how did Jesus Christ destroy sin and death and, and make a public spectacle of the powers and principalities both seen and unseen that were opposed to the Father's will? He did something the world calls foolish and weak. He endured the violence at the hands of sinners being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that seemingly weak and foolish course of action overcame the world, destroyed sin and death, made a mockery of powers and principalities. Jesus Christ says, I am building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Folks, a third reason why this is a cause for rejoicing when they endure persecution at the hands of the council for doing the Father's will is because it is a confirmation that the Lord Jesus is bringing to pass that overcoming work in this world that he has already guaranteed as good as done. When we endure persecution and suffering for being faithful to doing the Father's will, by being faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ in this world, folks, there is a battering ram from heaven against hell against hell, destroying powers and principalities that is, is unequaled by any other form. Transformation, affirmation that we are worthy of our eternal inheritance, confirmation that the great power of God is working in this world in his ways, not the world's ways, to destroy the power of hell in this world and ultimately to bring in eternity. Folks, not a popular message, maybe not one you've heard, but I, I'm, I'm just picking minor points here. I could spend days going through the scriptures bringing this message to the fore. And the fact that it is so foreign to our experience as the church in America, I think is a testimony of perhaps the greatest identity crisis that we have. And its absence ought to beg us to ask the question, why is this not our experience? And if it's not, what are the implications? To the why... I think in part it's because we move heaven and earth in appeals to worldly powers to protect us and to keep us from the very things we've just talked about. What are the implications? In the life of the church and in the life of your walk, forego the greatest work that God does in us in transforming us into the likeness of Christ. Forego the great affirmation that we are worthy of an eternal inheritance and to forego the great confirmation that we are being used by Christ to tear down the very powers of hell, the powers and principalities, both seen and unseen, opposed to God's will and purposes. How are we doing? I'll get off that soapbox and go to my closing point here. And that is worship and serve it at PRBC, knowing that Christ has called you here as his divine act for a divine purpose. Uh, if Christ is building his church with careful precision shaping every stone and carefully fitting them together according to his will, then any faithful local church, folks, is not an accident of our random association. You know, whether in towns or cities, big or small, up north, down south, out west, one constant that Lucia and I have encountered in each place uh, that we've seen in our many assignments uh, is almost this whimsical pastime within the, church of, uh, within the church-going culture of each of these places to just move from church to church. Uh, 
Sometimes it was because the church called the gifted preacher or instituted a flashy worship service. Word got around drawing people away from their churches to the new attraction in town, things like that. But folks, if the church is truly Christ's handiwork, fitting believers carefully together in a local church according to his will, as I believe today's text teaches, then becoming who we truly are, it means acknowledging that Christ has called you into this local church as his divine act for a divine purpose. You're not a voluntary association or a social gathering. This is a calling carefully prepared by him as the great master craftsman. And folks, we should always serve as Christ calls us until he calls us to do otherwise and or to do it elsewhere. In closing and in sum, my challenge to you today is to long for your church, my church, every faithful local church, to look like the redeemed from every tribe, tongue, and nation in glory because such things bring glory to him now. Long to be a place where tired, poor, and weary souls can discover Christ's deliverance from the hostility in the world that devours people and communities and deliverance into the community that Christ seeks to build as a testimony to the world of a kingdom come and to bear true faith and allegiance to our king as we do, which means what would Jesus do, but don't just wear that as a wristband. Take it to its fullest extent. Are you willing to give everything? He who loves his life will lose it. He who loses it for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the message of your word. Thank you for the high calling of life in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the the marvelous wonder and majesty of your church. Lord, angels long to look in and to see what's happening here. The author of Hebrews describes our gathering and our worship as a gathering before the whole host of heaven, before the throne of God with the Father and the Lamb seated, the host of heaven, the angelic host and festal gathering, uh, the redeemed of every family, tribe, tongue, and nation. Father, I believe as we worship this morning, they are looking down upon us as we join together with them. So great a cloud of witnesses. Father, we follow a great cloud of witnesses that has left us a great example. There is no greater example than your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we find our common bond in him. May we only make the distinctions that he makes between people and in this world. May we faithfully bear the cross that he bore in the likeness of his cross, in the likeness of his suffering. And so be found worthy, so be found pleasing to you. And Father, lest we somehow take this message and believe that it is the work of our own strength and the own power, Father, may we earnestly seek your grace that Jesus Christ has made possible as we boldly approach the throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help in time of need as your needy people. Father, sustain us to whatever end you call us, And, Father, where that end brings us to trial and persecution and affliction and trouble, Lord, move in us to trust you, whether you deliver us from, whether you deliver us through, or whether you bring our life to that high calling where we give of it and trust in you to keep us faithful to our last breath. Father, may we glorify you in all that we do in this way, according to your perfect will, and in Jesus' name and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.